Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Before I forget, this uh, next Friday coming up, which is the 24th of August, I'll be out in California for a debate with Michael Shermer. It's actually in San Jose, California, Westgate Church, the Saratoga campus, right there in San Jose. We're debating what best explains reality, theism or atheism. And I think it's generally open to the public. Uh, admissions free, it says. So uh, all the details are on our website, crossexamine.org. The next night, Saturday, August 25th, I'll be at Valley Church in San Jose, California with my friend Neil Mammon. And we'll be talking, we'll be doing some kind of TED apologetics talks. Uh, how to answer the objection there errors in the Bible. The top 10 questions you ought to ask your non-Christian friends. Neil will do legislation, love, and the law of God. And I'll do why everyone discriminates. And then the next day, Sunday, I'll be in Gilroy, the garlic capital of the world, which is south of San Jose, about 45 minutes or so, at South Valley Community Church, great church down there that does apologetics every August with a number of speakers on the Sundays. So if you're anywhere near the Bay Area in uh, California, love to see you this coming weekend, next weekend. Uh, I got a bunch of questions, as I've been getting quite a bit lately since I gave you the email address, which is hello at crossexamine.org. I got a question on, let's see, uh, how the different punishments are in the Old and the New Testaments. Why is that? I have a question here on uh, why would uh, God regret doing something like he does in Genesis 6? He regretted creating. I mean, he knows everything. How could he regret? I have a question here uh, about, will we have free will in heaven? I got a question about my friend Andy Stanley. Is he going off the rails? What's the deal there? Um, in fact, we're going to have Andy on the program uh, on September 15th. Uh, so you'll just have to wait for the answer to that question. Andy's not going off the rails, in my view, anyway. Now, someone will say, someone will say do, you, do, you, do you believe everything Andy Stanley teaches or everything Andy Stanley says? I'll say no. I don't even believe with everything, everything I say. I mean, sometimes I get it wrong. No, I mean, I've known Andy for almost, uh, what, 17 or 18 years now. And um, I think that his new book, Irresistible, will clear up a lot of uh, what some have said that, oh, gee, he doesn't believe in the Bible being inerrant. No, no, he does believe the Bible's inerrant. He just believes in a different approach when you're talking to unbelievers, as do I. So you can tune in on September 15th to hear that. Uh, I have several other questions, but I just got two questions in. And I'm sorry I can't get to all these questions every week. I'm doing the best I can. But I just got two questions in on predestination and free will. I guess we were predestined to get these two questions today. And I thought we'd dive in on that topic because it's a question I get a lot on college campuses. I know many Christians, even non-Christians struggle with this question. And we often accuse, I do anyway, the atheists of being determinists. You know, if we're just molecular machines, if we're just moist robots, then, you know, we don't have free will. Then how could there be anything known as morality or free choice or any of these things. 
Uh, and yet it seems that some believe, some people who are Christians believe almost the same thing, that we don't have free will because God is sovereign. And if God ha- is sovereign, then we can't have free will. In fact, a lot of times you'll hear some Christians quote Romans chapter 9. In fact, let's just look at it briefly. This is Romans chapter 9, verses 15 to 18. And of course, you have to know the context of Romans here. Uh, as I mentioned several times, there are no Bible verses. There are no verses in the Bible. The verses were put in there. The verse numbering system was put in there about 500 years ago. It helps us navigate the text. But unfortunately, we seem to think that we can take verses as individual nuggets of truth without any context and apply them to ourselves. That's not so. Now, in Romans 9, what's Paul talking about? Well, let's set up Romans what is the book of Romans about? The book of Romans is really about the theological foundation of what Christianity is all about. It, it really is Paul's magnum opus when it comes to what Christianity is all about, why Jesus needed to come and what he did for us. And he starts out with condemnation, how everyone's condemned, chapters one through three. Then at the end of chapter three, he talks about justification, how we're saved because Christ has come and he saves us apart from the law because he's a propitiation or he's a sacrifice for our sins. And then beginning in about chapter six, he starts talking about sanctification, how we can become more and more like Christ. And in chapter eight, he talks about glorification. And then in chapter 12, the word therefore begins the chapter and it's all application. If all this is true, how should we live then? And you say, Frank, you left out chapters nine through 11. Yes, I did. Why? Because chapters 9 to 11 in Romans is sort of a, uh, a detour for Paul. If you read Romans chapter 8, it would make total sense to, for Paul to go right to Romans chapter 12 without any of this business about Israel. But he doesn't. He talks about Israel. Why does he talk about Israel? Because Israel seems to be a counter example to the truth he's trying to communicate. I mean, if all this stuff is true about God, Paul, if nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, what about Israel? In fact, this might be the peak of the entire Bible, if you think about it. The, the, the end of the book of, of Romans, or the end of chapter 8 in the book of Romans. What should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he? Not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That is Christ Jesus. Our Lord. Wow. It would have made perfect sense at that point to go on and say, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Paul doesn't do that. Paul stops. Paul stops after that amazing chapter, that amazing end to chapter 8. Paul stops. And he goes in Romans 9 to say, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, because those of my own race, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple and the promises. And he goes on and he finally gets down. To verse 15 or 14, where he says, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You say, then why does God still blame us who is able to resist his will? But who are you human being to talk back to God? We don't even have free will. How can we talk back to God? That's what some of the Calvinists, hard, hard five-point Calvinists are saying. Is that really true? Do we have free will? We'll talk about it right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examine podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button or simply use the donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. Do we have free will or is God so sovereign that precludes free will? I mentioned before the break... Some Christians will point to the passage we just read, Romans 9, to say that God who hardens whom he hardens, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. We don't really have free will. Who are you to talk back to God? That's the implication, it seems. Yet on the other hand, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge then, first of all, Paul says, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceable peaceful and quiet lives and all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Time out. Wait a minute, Paul. It seems you're saying in Romans nine that God hardens who he wants to harden And we don't really have free will. He goes on to talk about the potter and the clay. Yet here you are saying in in your first letter to Timothy that he wants all people to be saved. Well, if God does everything, if we don't have free will and God has to somehow regenerate us without our consent in order for us to be saved, yet he wants all people to be saved, then why aren't all people saved? 
I mean, this seems a bit contradictory. Now, let me just stop right here, ladies and gentlemen, and point out that I <laughs> am not going to solve this debate here in one podcast. I know people are going to still argue over this. And I, of course, I could be wrong with what I'm saying. This has been debate, debated for centuries now. But I'll just give you some of my thoughts on it, and you can decide for yourself if you, in fact, have free will. Anyway, um, and you can read books on this. For example, uh, Chosen But Free by my, my co-author of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, Dr. Geisler, wrote that book. Uh, John Lennox has a new book called Determined by God. I haven't read it yet, but I want to have John on the show again, and uh, I think that'll be a good book to read. But let's just talk about some of the implications of this. Let's just say, if we're going to say that man doesn't have any free will, that we don't have any free will, that would be very fatalistic, very deterministic. Some will say, why even evangelize? If God does it all, I mean, what, what, what part do we have? In fact, we can't even decide to be a part if we don't have free will. And it seems to me the biggest issue with hard five-point Calvinism, the idea that God does everything and man doesn't have any free choice at all when it comes to choosing God, is that it makes God the author of evil. And to illustrate this or explain it, I'll go back to a debate that my co-author, Dr. Geisler, had with a, another professor down at Dallas Theological Seminary many years ago by the name of John Gerstner. And God, John Gerstner was a five-point Calvinist, and Dr. Geisler was not. And uh, at one point, Geisler asked Gerstner in the debate, does man have free will? And Gerstner responded, yes, man has free will to do the desires of his heart, but God gives man the desires of his heart. So at that point, Geiser said, well, who gave Satan the desire to sin? Or who gave Adam the desire to sin? And then beyond, beyond that, Satan, the desire to sin. And Gerstner said, mystery. And Geiser said, no, contradiction, because now you've made God the author of evil. And if God is all good, he can't be the author of evil. He might allow evil. He might create the conditions that allow it, like creating other free creatures who can choose evil. But he, he isn't the one choosing evil directly. He may allow the conditions, just like when you have children, you're the instrumental cause of your children, and you create the possibility that they will sin, but you don't actually sin when they sin. But if God does it all, if we don't have free will, then it would seem that God is the author of evil. This is called a voluntaristic position when it comes to theology. That God at his core is arbitrary when it comes to uh, good and evil, which, of course, isn't the traditional Christian viewpoint, the Orthodox viewpoint anyway. God isn't arbitrary. That might be the viewpoint of Allah, of, of some Muslims might view Allah that way, that Allah is arbitrary, that God, that Allah does what he wants to do, regardless of any nature that he has. Whereas the traditional Christian view, long prior to John Calvin would be that God is the standard of goodness and he does what is good and he doesn't force people to do evil. Now, to be fair, one of my favorite teachers for many years has been R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul. R.C. died uh, six, eight months ago. I think it was December, actually. And if you, you want to hear some great podcasts, I mean, just look up R.C. Sproul. Great teacher. Solid in philosophy, solid in theology, solid in apologetics. It's hard to find a guy who's solid in all that. Um, but one thing I disagreed with R.C. on was this hard five-point Calvinist view. 
But I just heard him on a recording recently saying that we do have free will to make certain choices. Like he was talking about people that came to the lecture he was at. You know, you had the free will to come here. You had the free will not to come here. And you chose to come. That's great. The odd thing was, it seemed to me that R.C. was saying that we don't have the free will to make the most important choice we can make. I mean, R.C.'s position appeared to be less deterministic than the materialistic atheist choice, or I should say the, the materialistic atheistic position, the position that says only molecules exist and we're completely governed by the laws of physics and we don't have any choice in the matter. R.C.'s position is, no, we do have a choice in the matter. The problem is, it seems like R.C. was saying, and unfortunately, he's not here to counter this at this point. He's in a much better place. But um, he seemed to be saying, if I understood him correctly, that we do have the free will to make everyday choices, but just not the most important choice that any human being can make. And that is the choice to accept Jesus. He talked about how man is dead in trespass and sin, quoting from Ephesians chapter one. But I don't think the reading that, that he mentions there is the correct reading or the correct interpretation is correct reading. I don't, I don't think that when he says that dead and trespasses and sins, in fact, let me just read the passage. This is Ephesians chapter two. As for you, you were dead in your tr transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. We were all doing this. He said, when we had this gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature. And he goes on ultimately to say, as you know, Paul says in this passage for it is by grace, you have been saved through faith and, this is the, uh, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift? Not the faith. The gift is the salvation. It's not by work so that no one can boast. And you were God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when, when Paul's talking about being dead in transgressions and sins, it means that we're separated from God. It doesn't mean that we can't perceive that the gospel is true. We can perceive it. And if we choose, we can receive it only after God, God's Holy spirit comes to us. We can reject the Holy spirit. In other words, we can say, no, Holy spirit, we don't want you. We can grieve the Holy spirit as Ananias and Sapphira did. You can grieve the, you, you, you can reject God's call on you. The Holy Spirit's call on you. You wouldn't come to God unless God called you. But once God calls you, you can accept the free gift of salvation. It's not like you're completely unable to understand the gospel. You can understand the gospel. I've heard many atheists clearly describe the gospel. They know that it's true, but they reject trusting in it. So, how does this comport then with? The idea that Romans 9 seems to say that God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He seems to be saying that he maybe elected Pharaoh to do what he did. Well, that's why at the top of the show, I talked about the structure of the book of Romans. Romans 9 is talking about God's election of the nation of Israel, not the election of individuals to salvation. In fact, if you back up a few verses to, to verse 11 in uh, chapter 9, it says, Yet before the twins were born, 
or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to, mercy, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. We read this passage already. Now, what is that quote? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated from. And what election is being referred to there? It's not the election to eternal salvation. It's the election of the nation of Israel. That's actually a quote from Malachi. That's not a quote from Genesis. Paul is quoting the book of Malachi or the Italian prophet, prophet Malachi. You get the idea. Okay. <laughs> He's quoting Malachi there. There are two kinds of elections in the scriptures. There, there is the election to individual salvation. Don't get me wrong. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit later. But Romans 9 is not talking about that. Romans 9 is talking about the election of the nation of Israel through whom the Savior would come. He's not saying that Pharaoh has necessarily been elected to, to hell and that he has no capacity or no possibility Pharaoh's going to be in heaven. That's not what the text is talking about. The text is talking about that God used Pharaoh for his own purposes. And after Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God completed the process. In fact, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter one, that if we suppress the truth long enough, God will complete the process. He'll give us up to our own desires. So God is not arbitrarily hardening Pharaoh's heart against his will. He's hardening Pharaoh's heart in accord with Pharaoh's will to get God's purposes done. And you say, well, Frank, how are you so sure that this is the election of the nation of Israel and not the election of individuals to salvation for two reasons. One reason is where it is in Romans. He's talking about Israel's past in Romans nine in chapter 10, he's talking about Israel's present. And in chapter 11, he's talking about Israel's future. Those three chapters are a detour for Paul. As I mentioned earlier, between chapters eight and chapters 12 of the book of Romans. You could, if, if you read the book of Romans, as I mentioned earlier, chapter eight, the end of chapter eight, the beginning of chapter 12, those two chapters fit together perfectly. But Paul takes a detour, nine, 10 and 11 to talk about Israel because his readers are probably thinking, hey, Paul, if you're saying all this stuff is true about what Christ has done, yeah, we're condemned, but he came to justify us. He came to sanctify us. He will ultimately glorify us. So we should live this way. What about Israel, Paul? You, you come from the Israel. Uh, you come from Israel. You're a, you're a Pharisee. If, if this is all true, why don't, why don't your, your countrymen believe? And so he spends three chapters on this. And when we come back from the break, I think the clincher is in Romans chapter 11 that this tells you that Romans chapter 9 is not about the election of individuals to salvation. It's about the election of the nation of Israel to be the conduit, the conduit through which all nations and all individuals who accept Christ will be blessed. I'm Frank Turek. We'll talk more right after the break. Our website, crossexamined.org. Back in two minutes. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. We're talking about free will and predestination, and you are predestined to continue listening. The Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Don't forget this Friday, the 24th, San Jose, California, debate with Michael Shermer. And uh, by the way, that will be streamed on our Facebook pages. So you got to like our Facebook pages, crossexamine.org and DR Frank Turek. I've, uh, what time does it start? I'll have to go back and look at the web. It's probably like 7 Pacific time. Might be like 10 Eastern, something like that. Anyway, uh, check the website, crossexamine.org. Click on events. You'll see, uh, you'll see Frank Turek calendar there. Then I have two events at other churches that weekend. Uh, Saturday and Sunday. So check all that out. Also, the Fearless Faith course begins with uh, my friend Jay Warner Wallace and Dr. Mike Adams, myself, the three of us will be teaching that. You can be part of the premium course live and ask us questions on seven different occasions live via Zoom video. If you sign up for the premium course starting September 6th, you got to go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. You want to be uh, one of the few or one of the few who can actually be live on us. We, we have uh, class sizes of only 50 people, so you can be sure you'll get an opportunity to ask us questions if you have them. So you'll, you'll want to sign up soon in order to do that. Uh, all right, let's see. Where were we? Oh, yeah, we were talking about Romans chapter 9 and how chapter 9, when it talks about hardening and it talks about mercy and I'll have mercy on whom I want to have mercy and Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's dealing with the election of the nation of Israel. You say, well, how do you know? Well, I think the context points it out. But when you go to chapter 11, you read this. And this begins in verse 25. This is from the book of Romans. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, right there. That sentence right there will tell you when Christ is coming back. When the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, when is that going to happen? We don't know. Jesus, as a man, didn't know. We don't know. But God is bringing in Gentiles right now. And then he goes on to say this. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. Verse 28, the key verse. Here it is. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, meaning Israel, are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are beloved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Did you get that? He's bifurcating election and the gospel. He's saying as far as the gospel is concerned, Israel is an enemy right now. But as far as election is concerned, they're beloved. Because they were the ones elected, elected as the nation to bring a blessing to the entire world. So Romans 9 is not talking about individual salvation. It's talking about 
the election of the nation of Israel, in my view, anyway. And I think Romans chapter 11 here points that out, because if election had to do with the gospel in this passage, he wouldn't say that he wouldn't bifurcate the gospel and election by saying, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. Israel is an enemy. No. If he was talking about Israel being elected to salvation, he wouldn't say it's an enemy. In any event, the Bible does teach, however, that God does elect people to salvation. You, you say, well, where? Well, how about Ephesians chapter 1? Blessed be the Father, and the, or blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And it goes on. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament. It goes on. So he is predestining us here to salvation in Ephesians 1. Does this mean we don't have free will? No. Here are some passages that seem to talk about free will. Ezekiel 18.32. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent and live. Well, if he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone, but we can't repent unless he forces us to repent, which really wouldn't be repentance. We'd be robots. We wouldn't be free creatures. Then why isn't everybody already, why isn't everybody already repented? First Timothy 2, we read this earlier. For this is good and acceptable in the God, in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack Concerning his promises, some count slackness, but his long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants everybody to come to repentance. So if God elects and wants all to be saved, he doesn't want anybody to be separated from him. Then why aren't all saved? Here's the answer. Free will. But how can, how can we be predestined and be free at the same time? First of all, let me point out one thing that may not be obvious, and that is man having free will and God being sovereign are not contradictory. Man has free will and God is sovereign is not contradictory. What is contradictory is man has free will, but man does not have free will. That would be contradictory. There's no contradiction between predestination and free will. The same act can be preordained by God and chosen by man, by man. Let me give you an illustration of this. Well, first of all, let me set this up. First of all, God is outside of time. When he elected to create this universe, he always knew that, say, Billy Graham would be a believer and, say, Richard Dawkins wouldn't be. But Billy Graham freely responded to God's Holy Spirit. And Richard Dawkins rejected God's Holy Spirit freely. And God always knew when he created this universe that Billy Graham would believe and Richard Dawkins wouldn't believe. But they still freely believed and freely chose not to believe. You see, you can't repent. You can't love unless you have some degree of free will. Because by definition, that requires free will. You can't have morality. And responsibility without the ability 
to choose. So God can be sovereign and we have free will at the same time. You say, how can that be? Because again, when God creates the universe, he knows how it's going to turn out. And he always knew Billy Graham would believe and Richard Dawkins wouldn't believe. So when God elected to create this universe, he sovereignly elected to do that. He didn't have to. He could have created another universe or no universe at all. But he elected to create this universe sovereignly. And yet, here's how it turned out. Why? Because we have the free will to trust God and accept what he's done or reject God and go our own way. I liken it to this. Let's suppose you uh, love college football. College football season coming up, and you, uh, you're away one day, and your favorite teams are playing, and so you can't watch the, the games, but you have a DVR at home, so you DVR the games. And you intend to watch the games as though they were live when you get home that night. And so you, you don't want to hear the scores. You just want to go home and watch it like they're live. Unfortunately, however, your friend texts you the scores of the game. And you go, man, I didn't know. I did not want to know the scores of the game. But you know now. There's nothing you can do. You can't unknow it. He told it to you. So you go home and say you elect to, to, to watch uh, the, the Gamecocks and, the, uh, and uh, Clemson. You, you, you elect to watch uh, Clemson and South Carolina. All right. Your, your friend already texted you the score. You know how the game's going to turn out. But does that mean that when you're watching the game, the, the people on the field don't have free will? No, they still have free will to do what they do, even though you know what they're going to do. In other words, knowing what someone's going to do doesn't mean that you're causing them, you're directly causing them to do it. God is outside of time. And in the analogy I just gave, you're in a way outside of time. You're, you're, you're after the game has been played, so you know what's going to happen. God, of course, knows before it's going to happen. God just knows. And by watching the game, that doesn't mean that you're causing the players to do things. So we can be free and God's sovereign. In fact, when some people say that, well, God, you're taking away from the sovereignty of God by claiming man has free will. I say, no, you're taking away from the sovereignty of God because you're saying God is not sovereign enough to get his free, his will done through free creatures. You're saying God isn't powerful enough to do that. That's what you're saying. And I'm saying, no, God is so powerful that he can get his will done ultimately through free creatures. He can do that. Now, there's no time with God. There's no logical or chronological sequence in his thoughts. We have knowledge. God is knowledge. Now, the Bible puts it from an observational perspective. In fact, Peter, writing his first letter, in the very first verse says this, to the elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout the, the area there. I can't even pronounce some of these places. Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithina, I think is the way you pronounce it, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. The Father, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, from our perspective, it's foreknowledge. From God's perspective, it's not foreknowledge. It's just knowledge. But from our perspective, God knows what we're going to do in advance, but he's not causing us to do it directly. He creates the, the conditions by which we do it, but he's not causing us to do it. So, yes, God elects, but we're also free. We're chosen but free, as my co-author, Dr. Geiser, put it. So, I think the only way to properly understand this 
is when you hold those two things in tension, that God elects and yet he wants all to be saved, you realize that the reason not everybody's saved is because God could not create a universe where free creatures always chose him. Because, by definition, free creatures can choose not to believe. I mean, God could have, there's there's only four possible things God could have done. He could have created no world. Number two, he could have created a world of robots. Number three, he could have created a world of free creatures where everyone freely believes. That's logically possible, but probably not actually achievable with free creatures. Or number four, he could have created a world of free creatures where only some believe. And that's what he did. Number one, no world is not a creation at all. Number two, a world of robots is, is not a real moral world because there's no free choice. There's no love. There's no moral accountability. None of that. Uh, the third choice, a world of free creatures where everyone freely believes. It's logically possible, just not actually achievable. So what does God do? He creates a world of free creatures where only some freely believe and those that don't freely disbelieve. They don't want God, so God will not force them into heaven against their will. Why did God create people he knew would go to hell? Well, we'll unpack that more after the break, because I only have 12 seconds. Okay, I'm Frank Turek. The website, crossexamined.org. Like our Facebook pages, crossexamined.org and DR Frank Turek back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Predestination, free will. I think both are true. That yes, God elects to create this universe, and yet we freely do what we do in it. That's the only way that this world is a legitimate world of moral choices and moral responsibility. If we don't have free will, then we're just moist robots, as the atheists would say by their doctrine, that we're just molecular machines. We're puppets, if you will. And that's not a moral world. That's not a morally responsible world. It's not a world where love can exist. It's not a world where evil where evil could exist because choices aren't made freely. It's just a deterministic world. Now, I understand, and I know some of my five-point Calvinist friends will want to uh, nuance their view of free will. That's fine. I get that. But I think at some level, we have free will to make moral choices. If we don't, as I say, then this isn't a moral world. And God would then be the author of evil because God is doing everything directly, including evil. Now, if you want to go further with this, again, there's much more that could be said, much more that could be analyzed. Oh, by the way, the verse I wanted to, uh, to mention earlier about God going to all people, the Holy Spirit, is uh, from John chapter 12, where Jesus says, But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And the Holy Spirit goes out to all people and we can reject the Holy spirit. So you say, let me go briefly back to the question. And by the way, this is one of the questions in our app. We have a short answer section in our app, the cross examined app, two words in the app store, cross examined. One of the questions that we deal with in the app is why did God create people? He knew 
would go to hell? I mean, that seems like a hard question to answer, right? And by the way, notice it's a moral question because it implies that God would be immoral for creating people who we knew would go to hell. Well, again, what's your moral standard to say that God is immoral for doing what he does? It goes back to what Paul said in Romans chapter 9. In any way, in any event, um, let's, go, let's go to what we even say here in the, uh, in the app. Let me see if I actually have that in the app. We've got, why is Jesus the only way? What about those that have never heard? Will God send me to hell just because I don't believe in Jesus? Will people have a second chance uh, after death? Uh, why infinite punishment in hell for finite sins? Why won't God just annihilate? Oh, I, we, actually, we don't have that one in here. Maybe we ought to put that one. I thought it was in here. That's no, not. Well, off the top of my head, why did God, why did God create people he knew would go to hell? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, that third option where God creates people, a free world where everybody freely believes, while that's logically possible, it's not actually achievable with free creatures. Is God obligated not to create at all if one of his creatures sins? I think the answer is no. God can create even if many of his creatures sin. Because if they freely sin, and yet they freely don't want salvation, then all God can do is separate himself from them. But that doesn't mean he can't lavish his love on those creatures who will accept his love. God is not morally obligated to not create, double negative, sorry, because some people won't accept him. Hell can't veto heaven, as C.S. Lewis put it. So God creates people even knowing that they won't freely believe in him. They'll, they'll reject him freely. But God can still get his will, do, his will done through them. Even though he'd like them to believe, he can't force them to believe because love by definition must be freely given. He can't force it. So what does he do? Well, God creates them and then he can still get his will done through them. Uh, for example, let's use Richard Dawkins or any atheist. Uh, Richard Dawkins writes books, so let's use Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins might write a book, and a Christian may pick it up and go, wow, you know, I never thought of that argument against God. This is going to co- force me to sharpen my skills and investigate this and see if Dawkins is right. And I can actually be edified by something an atheist writes, because it forces me to examine my own beliefs and see if they're true or not. So that's a good thing. There's also the ripple effect that we've talked about many times on this program, that even people doing evil can ripple forward into the future to bring about good. Even murders and rapes and all sorts of awful things can ripple forward to ultimately bring about good. In eternity, if not even here on earth, God can see the good that can come from it. None of us would be here if it wasn't for atheists in our bloodline either by the very nature of how we're created. There are many unbelievers in my bloodline and your bloodline. We wouldn't even be here. There are many ways that atheists can unknowingly contribute to God's will. He would like them to trust in him, but if they reject him, then God won't force them into his presence against their will. Look, if there is a God and there is, and there is an afterlife and there is, there's only two 
possible destinations. You're either going to be with God in the afterlife, that's heaven, or you're going to be separated from God in the afterlife, that's hell. Those are the only two destinations. Now, hell is not going to be a pleasant place because you're separated from the ultimate source of goodness, righteousness, justice, and love by your own free choice. So, God knew people would go to hell, but he still thought it worth it to create a universe where at least some would accept his free gift. Now, as I said, there's a lot more that could be said about this topic. And so you can get those books if you want to go further. There's also the book um, uh, that John Lennox has just written. And I haven't read it yet, but I want to. I'm going to, I'm going to get it here shortly. It's called Predetermined by God. You can read Chosen but Free by Dr. Norman Geiser. And there are several others you can look at as well. So that's predestination free will. Um, another question I got, I mentioned earlier, I'll briefly answer. Do, will we have free will in heaven? I see no reason why we won't. Now, some people will ask, well, if we have free will in heaven, is there a danger that we'll sin? And um, it doesn't appear to be because we won't want anything that we we won't lack anything. I mean, the reason we, we sin now is because <laughs> we're trying to get good things in an illicit way. My friend Jay Warner Wallace says that most crimes he or all crimes he investigates have one or more of these three motives, sex, money or power. You're trying to get sex, money or power or prestige, pride, those kind of things. Those those are the things that motivate you to do evil. One or more of those three. But you're not going to lack any, any, anything that you want in heaven, so you won't have any, any desire to sin. Yet you will have the free will, and you need free will to love. Now, the question might be asked, well, how could Satan have sinned if he was in God's presence? Well, first of all, there's a couple of differences. Satan is an angel, and we don't exactly know the nature of angels. They're different from human beings who are a composite of soul and body, whereas angels are just a soul, so we... We're not exactly sure what difference we have there. The Bible does not unpack uh, what really happened to Satan, other than we know he's a fallen angel. Uh, in fact, we really just learn about the angels that he took took with him in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. So there's not a lot written in there. So we're just speculating quite a bit. But there is some sort of difference in nature, obviously, between human beings and angels. Yet back to the question I think we will have free will in heaven. And that question was sent in by Sean. Let's see if I can get to another one quickly. Um, oh, same question here. A uh, question from skeptics that I struggle answering. This is another Sean, uh, spelled S-H-A-W-N. He writes, uh, if God is all-knowing, why did he create humans and later regret doing so after witnessing their evil tendencies? Genesis chapter 6. Well, you can regret something you know is going to happen. When it happens, you still regret it, but that doesn't mean you didn't know it was going to happen. And it doesn't mean that um, when, when, first of all, let me back up. The Bible's written from our perspective. We're looking up at God from an observational perspective, and he reveals that he's displeased with our behavior. But he always knew that our behavior would be displeasing to him when he created uh, when you have your children, you know, at some point that kid in some way is going to break your heart. You know, it's going to happen. You know, the kid's going to sin and do something wrong. And when it happens, you might regret what they've done. You may even briefly regret creating them. Not completely, but you get the idea. You're like, oh, this is awful. 
And you knew it was going to happen. But you knowing it's going to happen doesn't mean the regret or the or the or the displeasure doesn't doesn't affect you. It does. It does. It does come on you. Now, now God isn't affected by outside forces. So this is written from our perspective. He's what we call in a theological perspective, impassable. He's always displeased with sin and he's always he's always uh, pleased with faith. So when we're sinning, we're under his displeasure. And when we're uh, faithful, uh, he's pleased with that. He loves us infinitely at all times, just like a parent will love his child no matter what the child does. But he doesn't change. We're the ones changing. So God regretting something that he knew would happen doesn't appear to be a problem to me. He knew it was going to happen. He could still regret it when it happens, much like you regret it when your child does something you knew your child would do. And there are other questions I'm going to have to get to next time. And uh, let me remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that I'll be in California next week, Lord willing, uh, for a Sher- uh, Michael Shermer debate. And uh, you can see that uh, live on our crossexamined.org Facebook page, and hopefully as well, our DR Frank Turek Facebook page. But you got to like those pages, and you've got to do something in your settings to make sure that Crossexamined is one of your top 20. Uh, I don't exactly know the setting in Facebook. Facebook is a mystery to me how they do things, but there's a setting somewhere where you can designate Crossexamined as one of your top sites. So whenever we do something, you get the video. So do that. And then there are a couple of other events I'll be speaking at in California, the San Jose area, next Saturday and Sunday. So I hope to see you there. And I'll be back here, Lord willing, next week. Also, don't forget about the Fearless Faith premium course that you can sign up for at crossexamine.org. Just click on online courses. And I'll see you along with Jay Warner Wallace and Mike Adams live online. All right. See you next week. God bless. We work hard to create great content and deliver truth and valuable insights to all of our cross-examined podcast listeners. If you agree, take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us. Just look for the cross-examined official podcast, three words on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We are truly grateful for your support. 